Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to bringing the benefits of transformational education to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. To support the mission of the Sounds True Foundation, I'm thrilled to announce that we've just opened registration for our first ever in-person fundraiser, the Sounds True Gathering. This inaugural event will take place at the end of September in 2019 at the 1440 Multiversity in the Redwoods of California. This special three-day gathering is an opportunity to slow down to connect with nature and to connect with ourselves, to enjoy wisdom teachings, shared meals, and heart-opening music, and also have the chance to meet new friends from around the world. This inaugural event will feature a lineup of premier Sounds True teachers and artists, including John Kabat-Zinn, Sanatam Kar, Ruth King, Kristen Neff, Mark Nepo, Zainab Salbi, Adya Shanti, Sean Korn, and many more. And the best part is that 100% of the profits will go directly to support the important work of the Sounds True Foundation. This event will most likely sell out quickly. As a listener to Insights at the Edge, I wanted to make sure you heard about it first here. To learn more or reserve your spot, please visit soundstruefoundation.org forward slash event. Again, to learn more or reserve your spot at the Sounds True Foundation gathering, please visit soundstruefoundation.org forward slash event. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Diane Paul Heller. Diane Paul Heller is an established expert in the field of child and adult attachment theory and models trauma resolution, and integrative healing techniques. She's developed her own signature training series on adult attachment that she calls DARE, Dynamic Attachment Repatterning Experience. And she's the author of a new book called The Power of Attachment, How to Create Deep and Lasting Intimate Relationships. In this conversation with Diane, we talk about different styles of attachment, these unconscious blueprints that are so deep in all of us and have such an incredible impact on the quality of our lives, the quality of how we connect with other people. And Diane emphasizes that no matter what kind of patterning we inherited early in our life, we have the opportunity now to move towards greater and greater connection and secure attachment, and she shows us the path. Here's my conversation with Diane Paul-Adler. Welcome, Diane. It's great to have this chance to talk to you about your new book, The Power of Attachment, How to Create Deep and Lasting Intimate Relationships. Welcome. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here, Tammy. Interestingly, your new book has a foreword from Peter Levine, and I think many of our Sounds True listeners will recognize Peter as the person who developed somatic experiencing, which is an embodied method for healing trauma. And I know that you taught somatic experiencing for two decades. And to begin our conversation, I'd love to understand how your work grew out of somatic experiencing and healing trauma to then really focus in many ways on what you call attachment repatterning. What's the connection between healing trauma and attachment repatterning? 
Well, Tammy, I can't say enough about what Peter Levine has contributed to healing uh, for all of us in terms of understanding how the body reacts to trauma, how symptoms form, somewhat from over arousal in the nervous system that can't discharge because you just have too much shock or fear or anger trapped in the nervous system and in the body. And um, he's definitely a huge mentor for me, and I appreciate his work so much. And I did teach it for 25 years, so a long time we've been together, and we still collaborate, and I just can't say enough uh, good things about Peter Levine. Um, and when I was working with it so deeply, um, that's the whole story, the journey of diving into deep trauma, um, I, we were working a lot with the physiology, which was so helpful, regulating the nervous system, moving from passive to active responses and how to help the body complete incompletions related to traumatic incidents or how you would have defended yourself if you could have defended yourself. And um, had a very strong physiological focus and just so much knowledge there. I, you know, take the whole call just to talk about that. But uh, one of the things that I recognize uh, in my journey through trauma myself and also with so many clients over 25 years and still going, so it's more been more like 35 years, um, is that so much of the time there's this un, untenable reaction when we have trauma that we disconnect from ourselves. We often feel isolated and disconnected from other people. And I and I think it was James Lipton that said uh, a short definition for trauma would be broken connection. And I started to get really interested in how do we heal broken connection? And I sort of became a calling and I thought, well, gosh, you kind of have to go back to the beginning, the early attachment pattern patterning to really see what's happening in our original template for relationships. And then of course, if we have trauma later, that might exacerbate an attachment injury or we have this kind of patterned way of responding. Maybe there's even support there, but we can't accept it because of early uh, deprivations in childhood. So I just sort of had that deep interest in studying and helping resolve trauma that was so deeply guided by Peter Levine. And then I really found that the relational piece, you know, really working with what's happening between therapists and client or what's happening between partners or parents and children, what's happening in the relational field? How can we help people come back into contact with their authentic self, their deep, true self, as well as be capable and interested in deep intimacy. Did you see, Diane, in your work with people who were suffering from trauma that their early attachment wounding would surface in the wake of a trauma? Very often it does. Uh, and you can speak to attachment trauma as well as developmental trauma. They're kind of big topics. But uh, actually, when we have had in our early upbringing secure attachment, which basically means our holding environment in the family was positive enough. It engendered basic trust. Parents were present. They were protective appropriately, right? And they were consistent. They were available when needed, but they were also okay with the child, you know, moving into their own aloneness as uh, depending on the age and all of that was working. It's actually becomes um a way to mitigate against getting PTSD later. They've even had studies with soldiers returning from similar war experiences and those that had early attachment that was secure in their families, they often didn't get PTSD, whereas people that had rougher childhoods or more deficits in their childhoods, they often did get PTSD. They had more propensity for that. So I think you can have early secure attachment, but the good news is we can heal our attachment insecurities or attachment injuries uh, with the right support back towards secure attachment. And the more that we accomplish that, the more we have a deeper resiliency against uh, sustaining traumatic uh, reactions or symptoms after we've had an overwhelming life event. There's no escape from overwhelming life events that I can see for anybody. Um, so it's really helpful to put secure attachment healing in the mix when you're trying to help people recover from difficult experiences. Mm -hmm. And in terms of this original blueprint that we've received, you talk about attachment patterns as an unconscious blueprint that is in our body memory. At what point is that laid down in our body memory? Is that all happening? And does it begin even in the womb? Is it the first year or two of life? I would suggest uh, that it begins even in the womb. There's not really any way to, you know, test that with evidence. But 
I think how a mother's being held by her husband and maybe other family members, if that's really positive holding, the child's going to feel more secure and safe. I mean, we know that even taste preferences are transmitted from mother to child. So certainly emotional reactions or emotional situations or difficulties or deprivation would also be possibly trans- transferred to children. So I would say it starts in the womb in the first couple of years of life. And the reason we don't remember it like a story is we don't have an ego structure available when we're that young to record like a verbal memory. Uh, but we have a pre-verbal memory that we often call implicit memory where it is laid down in the body. And so very often when we're in a relationship later or, you know, it'll trigger certain um, automatic responses that we may not even know or question uh, if they're actually serving us in that relationship. Okay, so I want to make sure that we introduce our listeners to the map of attachment patterning that you offer in your new book, The Power of Attachment. You talk about secure attachment and then three different types of insecure attachment. And I wonder to begin with here if you could give us that overview and describe what might have been happening in a family situation between a mother, father, and a child that would create each one of these different attachment styles? Okay, I'd be happy to go into that. With secure attachment, first of all, I agree with John Bowlby, who put this idea out quite a few years ago, that biologically all of us are designed for secure attachment. We have it, we come in with it when we're born, and we seek it as little infants, and uh, we pull on that from our parents, and hopefully our parents can respond. But attachment patterning is very often transmitted generationally. So how you were parented very often just becomes kind of automatic how you might parent your children. And also, it's not just parenting. I want to say this for everybody, because sometimes it's a medical procedure. Maybe you had birth trauma and you were or you were premature and you were separated from your mom or dad or they had an illness and they and you, they caused a separation. Different things can factor in besides parent child uh, conditioning. And you only need to get 20 to 30 percent of it right for um, secure attachment to happen. So it's a very forgiving system. So all everybody that's listening, I just want you to take this burden off your shoulders like, oh, I wasn't perfect or I made this mistake. I mean, you're, you're not required to be perfect for secure attachment. And our attachment system is highly responsive to the relational field we're in at the moment. So you might have one attachment style or reaction to a grandparent or a father or a mother or a sibling or, you know, later on with school teachers or friends or workers, you know, co-workers. So it, it is a a part of us that responds to the current emotional relational environment. And it does, I believe it eventually can shift more towards secure. We can learn secure attachment skills, but to, to speak to your point, um, secure attachment would be, like I said a little bit earlier, a positive enough holding environment. That means that people around you are attuned to you. They get a sense of what your needs are. And, you know, they say babies have different cries for I'm hungry or I want to play or put me down or pick me up or I need a diaper change. Um, And really attuned parents can eventually pick that up. But uh, it's hanging in there long enough with somebody to get to the real need. And often good mothers just naturally do that. They just have a sort of sense about it or they learn it as they're um, having an ongoing relationship with their children. And most important, of course, in all of our life and all of our situations is to show up and be present. So the more a parent has, you know, done their homework and they have the capacity to be truly present with their children, that is a huge part of secure attachment. Um, They're naturally protective, but they also don't get in the way as children get older or they want to do things on their own. Like maybe they want to confront the bully on their own or that the parent is there as backup. So that's a little age related how much... um, you take over the protective function, but of course you are there as a protector. You're consistent, reliable enough. For secure attachment, there's this um, consistent responsiveness. Uh, Shaver and Hazen did a study on the different attachment styles related to responsiveness. So if you think of a secure attachment, um, I would say the key words are um, presence, attunement, That's a very short uh, definition for secure attachment. And then I would say responsiveness. So that basically just means that you're there, uh, again, not 100%, but you're there enough of the time that a child feels they can really rely on you. And um, 
you as an adult, as a parent, would be regulating the household. You'd know about how to self-regulate. You'd know how to co-regulate with your kids, which would include things like safe touch. I mean, if you're talking about parent to child, it'd be like holding a baby skin to skin, having a loving gaze, uh, what's called an attachment gaze, uh, so that when they look out into the world, they see love and connection. They, they connect to you. Um, you can calm or soothe your child as needed. Uh, your communication is predictable. It's not confusing. Um, it's sensitive. Uh, you're contactful. Um, you know, you invest in understanding the uh, and aligning with the child's experience or what's going on for them. Um, and then one of the things is that's really important is that we all in our relationships can learn to repair, to initiate and respond to repair attempts. So things are going to go off. It's a little bit like sailing. Nobody goes, you know, from point A to point B with parenting. Everybody that's listening knows that. There's a lot of ups and downs and going out of attunement and back in. But part of that is us learning how to create relationship resiliency. So when I fall out of attunement, I hopefully I'm present enough as a parent to recognize that or if I'm a partner, I'm present enough to recognize that I'm a little bit off in my relationship, that you can start to, you know, look at like, okay, where'd that go off? Or can I um, repair that misattunement? What can I do to repair that? And if somebody's trying to repair me with me, even if they don't do it perfectly, like they send you flowers and you'd really rather have chocolate or they don't say it quite right, or they don't do it within the first 24 hours, that you allow yourself to build a receptivity to other people's repair attempts. And when you add repair, uh, that really helps keep us in a secure attachment connection. Um, they, John Gottman did a lot of studies on this when he was doing research on couples. And he said those that would receive and initiate repair attempts well, they had 80% more sustainability of well-being in their relationship. So if you don't take anything else away from today, learn how to repair in your relationships. And uh, whoever apologizes first, is, that's great. Doesn't matter who it is, but get back to that sense of repair. That really brings us back to secure attachment. And another thing that's kind of fun, being playful, having playtime with your partners or your kids or your coworkers or friends. That is a real, uh, really a bonding um, way to support and enhance secure attachment. So we all need to play more. I'm like putting a little vote in for that for everybody. All right. Playfulness. Okay. So secure attachment. What percentage of the population do you think is alive right now that was raised in a secure patterning, secure attachment patterning? Any guess? You know, there's a lot. There's, yeah, there's a lot of different research results on that. And it varies anywhere between um, 40 and 55%. Um, so it's apparently going down, unfortunately, uh, as the year goes by. And I wonder, you know, I have to ask this question, is like how much of that is because we're doing so much on social media and not doing as much face-to-face -face where you can actually touch someone and hear their voice and their prosody, you know, their tone of voice is, is important as a signal for secure attachment. And, you know, we used to, in the 50s, when I was, I was born in 1954, so in the late 50s, early 60s, we usually had a stay-at-home parent. And now, you know, economically, it's just become necessary pretty much globally that both parents are uh, involved in working more and more. So there's not as much, um, you know, uh, contact or time to be with kids and everybody does their best. And fortunately, still have some folks that can stay at home. But uh, you're kind of having to really work to make those times you have together high quality. And sometimes you're coming home from work and you're pretty tired. So um, you kind of I gave it the office. And it's it's just important that we understand even more today that we understand what attachment requires and that even if we have more limited time, we can make the most of it and we can learn to repair. We can learn how to make sure we're looking and sending what I call a beam gleam. I think that term came from Patty Elledge um, across the room to my child or my partner or a friend or even my dog. Try it with your animals at home. It works with them too, where you're just sending this loving gaze to somebody. It doesn't cost anything. takes 10 seconds. There's all these things we can do. And that's really what the book is uh, hoping to accomplish is to give you very easy uh, steps to go back to secure attachment. It doesn't mean it'll happen immediately. It doesn't mean there won't be some pain to process because usually as we discover secure attachment antidote, and uh, antidotes, we're also feeling what we didn't have as kids or what we didn't have when in a partnership or a relationship that was painful. So, you know, it's a journey. It's part of the human journey. But I think having some guideposts 
really makes it much easier for all of us to to find that, to at least know what we're looking for mm-hmm. and how to get there. Before we move on to the insecure attachment, I have a couple questions about this. So an environment only needs to be 20 to 30 percent attuned to a child for that child to feel the environment, the parents in the environment, the caregivers, 20 to 30 percent. But, you know, I know... That's lo- according to Ed Tronic. That's according to Ed Tronic. And I would say, it, 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 I would think that would be also including the ability to repair, to come back into attunement. That's a really important part of keeping secure attachment alive along with that 20 to 30 percent. Okay, but I want to ask a question about this because I know a lot of people, Diane, who would say, you know, I have this type of insecure attachment. But, you know, the parents I had, they weren't really that bad. They were probably there, 20 to 30 percent attuned. I wonder, do you think it's possible for people who are super sensitive that perhaps they needed something special that they didn't get in their environment? That could be part of it. Um, The other thing is very often these things are not one-time events. They're kind of patterns. So every time you express a need, you get shunned. Or every time you express a need, it's misattuned, so you don't really um, get what you were hoping to get from it, you know. So usually these are things that recur over and over again that kind of build that original blueprint um, blueprint situation for what relationships will be or what you expect or how you trust or you don't trust. And the other thing is, is that if you've had a childhood that's been marked by um, severe traumas or ongoing stresses, like an, a parent with addiction or an abusive parent or something on the more severe side, it's like that burns such a memory into you that sometimes that really deep, dark memory kind of pulls in any other positive memory with it. And sometimes when we heal trauma, we actually start to regain some of our more positive memory moments that were actually there, but were sort of overshadowed by all of the difficulties. So there's a lot that goes into this. And I, you know, I think, I think this is a, a tool that thrown in the mix with a lot of other tools can be very, very helpful for people to sort that out. And it's also, the other, the other thing I want to mention before I forget, Tammy, is it's how we internalize our original environment. And so as we go through and we start to investigate a little bit more, we may start to broaden our experience of what actually happened when we were younger. Why would somebody internalize it perhaps in a more negative way than, or someone internalize it in a more positive way? I mean, what creates that filter? Heart. Partly memory gets laid down. Well, there's many types of memory, but what I'm talking about is implicit uh, memory. Memory gets laid down by duration and intensity. So when things are repeated, that that creates a longer duration of a particular behavior, right, or a particular response. And then if it's highly intense, we might remember that, say, say everything's okay seven days out of the week, but something really tragic happens on Tuesday. We, we might tend to, to remember that unfortunate uh, experience with our parents or in, in life more than we remember those other six days. So intensity and um, duration. And it also kind of helps you understand why three different siblings, even twins, might have a very different experience of their childhood, even though they're born into the same family. Let's move on, Diane, and hear about the insecure attachment patterns. Well, typically, uh, the two insecure attachment patterns are called ambivalent and avoidant in childhood patterns. As we're adults, those same patterns for avoidant would be called dismissive and for ambivalent would be called preoccupied. There's a third attachment style that's called disorganized that in a way is more severe than insecure. It's when we have threat mixed in with the attachment system. There's more trauma involved in the uh, disorganized attachment. And because it doesn't have a predictable pattern, because so many different things can manifest on that one, it's more complicated. So I'll talk about that last. But um, let's start with avoidance. What typically happens from a parental situation for avoidance, and again, this could be medical procedure, there's different things that could influence the child's temperament, um, you know, generational patterning. But if we just focus right now on what could go wrong uh, in parenting, some of these things could happen. It may not be everything I'm going to describe, but enough of it that a child starts to isolate. They start to keep their sense of self separate from the family or from the mom or the dad. And usually what that, what that means is they're in an environment which is highly neglectful. Like when they look to their parent, there's sort of 
nobody's home. Like, so they're reaching out for connection and nobody responds. So uh, from a responsiveness point of view, it would be consistent non-responsiveness. When their needs come up, they're either met with the, the wrong thing or they don't, aren't, their needs aren't recognized at all. When they look in for eye gaze, um, they see hatred or they see vacancy. And that's very traumatizing to a kid. Vacancy is traumatizing to a kid because they need the presence of their parent. Um, they experience a lack of attunement. Uh, often they aren't held much or played with uh, in their, with their toys or engaged with playfulness very much. So here they are reaching out into the world. So their secure attachment is working, but they have to adapt to a parent that can't respond very well. And, you know, usually that parent hasn't healed from their own uh, relational and attachment injury. And they, so they're bringing it forward into the next generation. But what will happen then is a kid will isolate and they'll start to feel like, you know, they manage their needs better. They try to self-regulate. But instead of really self-regulating, they're regulating through disconnection and dissociation most of the time. So it may look like they're totally autonomous, but if you were to give them like a, you know, check their pulse and all of that, uh, they would show a lot of signs of stress, even though they may not show it uh, facially or in, in behavior. They're actually experiencing a lot of physiological stress. And if you think about it, they're having to put their brakes on an attachment system. It's a very strong system. We are really designed for connection. So to, to kind of put the brakes on inside ourselves to block or turn off our attachment system, that's very, very stressful. And if you grow up more isolated, you don't have the, um, the support of a tribe, the support of connection. And connection is one of the main ways we regulate ourselves, one of the main ways we heal. I mean, often we're injured in isolation, but we heal in connection. So it's a very big injury uh, for avoidance. And what I really like people to try to understand and have compassion for, if they have a child or a partner or a client uh, that's struggling with this, you know, to whatever degree, is that when they start to surface, Maybe you're being really kind to them or they're in treatment and are starting to feel their original um, need to, to connect. It's very important that you show up in a nourishing, present kind of way because it, it is an excruciating vulnerability for someone with avoidance to open themselves up to that level of intimacy or that level of desire for connection again. And they need to be met with something as yummy as possible. Uh, coming back at them to start to learn and experience in their body, their emotional self, their heart, that good connection can happen, that they can let down, they can express their needs, they can join into a more intimate connection. So important for the avoidant. And it's possible. But usually in the beginning, like if you're trying to work with someone with that, they'll often sort of resist it or say they don't need it, or I do things better on my own, or I, I meet my needs better myself. And uh, it takes a while to get buy-in for that. But if you can start to help them understand and interview a little bit about their history, very often you start to see that that was an adaptation away from attachment that they had to make to survive. And they start to feel that in themselves. And then they start to start to take a few more risks. And so I always try to provide these corrective experiences that help people come out. So one of them, I know, um, I have on YouTube and it's called uh, kind eyes exercise. And it's like imagining that you're looking out into the world and there's kind, loving eyes looking back at you. And that could be completely imaginary, or maybe you've seen a picture of the Dalai Lama looking beautifully compassionate, or uh, even a picture from your history, one of your family members or your dog or a friend or even a stranger, but that has that kind of bean gleam in their eyes. That's just, I accept you. I care about you. Kind of like in the olden days, I think, when you used to surprise people at their homes, you know, drop something off like a, I don't know, banana nut bread or something. And the person would open the door and go, oh, my gosh, Tammy, it's you. Wow, I'm so glad you're here. And you just see them light up when they unexpectedly see you at their door. That would be a beam gleam. That would be you're totally welcome. You feel completely loved by that person. You feel like they're happy to see you. And that's what we're hoping to stimulate just in eye contact for someone, um, in this case, dealing with avoidance. And then you track, maybe maybe they immediately feel the relief of that and the nourishment, or maybe what comes up is the wound of remembering that they used, that with their parents, they looked into blank eyes or angry eyes or rejecting eyes. And then you help them process that, that pain, but then they eventually can see that you're looking at them with caring and kindness. So these are some of the things that experientially we kind of have to 
excavate the old pattern if it's insecure and meet it with the resource or the need um, is met in a way in that exercise that helps heal what the original disappointment or devastation was. Does that make sense? Totally. It's very clear. And I do have some more questions, but let's first, I want to just make sure that our listeners have the full map here. So let's move on to the ambivalent patterning. Ambivalent is a different pattern, and it's it's more that there is um, in the in the parental relationship, there's kind of on again, off again parenting. So it's a little bit less like Las Vegas. You know, you you don't know. Uh, you start to relax into the love of a parent, and then all of a sudden they get distracted and they sort of drop you, and then you try again, and and because this of this uh, consistent inconsistency, this inconsistent responsiveness, uh, it sort of creates a dynamic for children where they're always looking out to see if they can change or get the parent to settle or get the person to be there reliably in terms of meeting their needs. And it creates a lot of anxiety because sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So they never know when they're going to get the win of contact and connection. And then also this type of parenting often involves a a certain intrusiveness, not an awareness of boundaries. So very often there's a feeling of um, being a little bit invaded sometimes when somebody has an ambivalent pattern. Uh, And they respond to this on again, off again by increasing anxiety and having this accentuated fear of abandonment. So they tend to uh, be a little bit clingy sometimes and our culture is so autonomy oriented that clinginess is like, uh, you know, if, if it could be, it'd be a four letter word. Um, and so they often demand a lot from their partners later on. And, and sometimes if they've had a lot of disappointment in childhood with this kind of pattern, they often end up complaining. They have this feeling and pressure to speak. Like if I keep talking, I'm going to force connection. Somehow that connection will happen. And sometimes with the incessantness of that, this pressure to speak, they actually push away the people they want to be close to, either through constantly um, trying to engage them or complaining a lot or nothing ever being good enough is the way a partner might feel. And that's not an intentional thing for the ambivalent. So I want to explain why that happens in a compassionate way, because when they were young, the only way they could get attention was either sometimes through illness or sometimes through crying. But usually at an infant level, they often had the experience of getting more contact through crying or being ill. And so their pattern that if they stop crying, it's like a survival issue, they'll lose their attachment figure. So they don't understand this even themselves, uh, but there's this fear of being abandoned if I stop my trying to engage the other person. And this is kind of interesting because even when they start to get what they want from their partner, they'll tend to dismiss the caring behavior. They'll tend to not see it. And they'll keep, because they're in this physiological loop, they'll keep pressuring for something, even though they might actually be getting good responses, they don't acknowledge them. They often negate them and keep complaining. It's like, it's like, okay, I want to go out to dinner and your partner says, great, that's wonderful, let's go. And and, the, and then you end up at the Italian restaurant and they start complaining because they really wanted to go to the Greek restaurant, but they didn't tell you that. You know, So there's always a sort of, it's not good enough. And partners later on can feel kind of, you know, exasperated by that. And, and it's not, the, the ambivalent doesn't really even understand why they're pushed to do that. And it's not because they mean anything um, to frustrate people, but... Like what I did with one client, I had her imagine having everything she could possibly want relationally on a big smorgasbord, like a banquet table full of her favorite foods and her favorite emotional treats and anything she would want in her relationship. And I said, I want you to imagine just taking that into your body as if, you know, just to take that in. And she was so shocked because she said, oh, my stomach, my whole body is constricting. It's like saying no. She said, why would I say no? And I said, I think it's let's just, let's just try something else. But now I want you just to imagine taking 1% of what's available to you. And she goes, Oh, I can do that. Her stomach relaxed. She could take it in. She started to feel satisfied, but often ambivalence don't know how to feel satisfied because of this early patterning. So she was feeling satisfied and then she goes, Oh, I think I wanted to try 2%. I'm like, great, let's try 2%. So she goes and takes in 2%. She's still able to manage it. She gets up to 5%. She's able to manage it. She's feeling fulfillment and satisfaction for, almost the first time in her life. And she did not realize that she had a trouble receiving and that she was blaming her partners through, through life. 
about that. And really it was her inability to receive. So as we helped her heal and make a practice of staying present when somebody does something nice for her, to notice it, stay present for it, try to take it in or take in 5% of it, um, then she started to build a capacity to receive. But she didn't even know that that was the issue. She thought all of her partners weren't doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. So what I love about this work is it cuts through blame. And we start to be able to feel our own pattern and not only feel the pain of it, but feel the possibility of how do we move out of that? How do we help ourselves heal? What tools can we practice that will bring us more towards secure attachment? And that's really what I'm hoping to like really um, expand on in the book. And I think you do a very good job of that. Just finally introducing disorganized attachment. Yeah, that, that's that a tough one. That's the tough one. Disorganized happens when a parent has been um, scary enough over childhood, especially early on, uh, where a child's threat response is on. They're hypervigilant, they're scared, they're feeling a lot of fear or anger um, in response to the way the parent's treating them. And that's interesting because it could be the parent actually doing something like yelling, um, you know, being a, a physically, sexually, or emotionally abusive, um, anything like that, hitting, of course, you know, not having good boundaries, uh, maybe having an ongoing addiction where there's a lot of chaos in the family. So those are some things that would be actively coming from the parents that would set up this dynamic where the threat response is shutting down the attachment system. And the attachment system and the threat response are kind of in a, because when we're, at, when we're in threat, we very often are not in the part of the brain that's interested in connecting, which is the medial prefrontal cortex. We're in our reptilian brain, which is about the threat response, and we're, we're, we're activating our sympathetic nervous system reactions of fight or flight, or we're shutting down completely into a freeze with over-parasympathetic, and um, that creates a lot of turmoil. Another way that disorganized can get set up is um, if the parents themselves has a trauma history, which many of us do, um, that's unresolved. And they're just sort of, maybe their behavior is kind and, and consistent and, and reasonable and everything most of the time. But they're, they're like emanating a, uh, a feeling of fear or terror from their own unresolved trauma. And a, a baby can't attach to fear and anger. It will disattach or disconnect or It'll disorganize the attachment system is where that word comes from. So what we're trying to do, and like when I'm trying to work with people, is help them separate out um, people that they feel relatively safe with, sort of their ally oasis, so they can give their attachment system a safe place to land. So I might have them talk about all the people they feel they can trust or they feel that soothe them or that being around them feels safe. And that might be you as a therapist or you as a partner or, you know, um, wherever you can start with that. Sometimes it's with people's pets, you know. Um, and then to start to feel what an uh, attachment would feel like when it's not interrupted by the threat response. And then we have to work with the threat response. And I would say, okay, what behavior of your mother or father was disturbing to you? And I take one parent at a time. And let's say it was yelling and say the father happened to yell a lot. I would have them, you know, put the father as far away from them as they need them to be and um, maybe mute the father or, you know, uh, put them in a soundproof booth or something so that they have distance. Because very often when people experience threat, they feel like it's right in their face. So they're overcome by it. So giving distance is the first part of that. And then silencing and um, making the uh, threat, threatening behavior of the father you, you immobilize that. You basically, you know, can, you can say things like you, he can't do or say anything that's disturbing right now. He's this far away and he's, he's um, immobilized. Then you can ask them to, what, now that the threatening behavior is immobilized, what do you want to do or say about that? Because you're trying to move them from passive reactions like collapse or uh, dissociation into active responses like finding their voice, saying, I hate it when you do that, or stop being so loud or go to an anger management class or, you know, or maybe they want to push him away, like making a boundary or they want to glare at him when he's in that behavior. And I always separate the behavior from the parent because I don't like to demonize parents. Usually we have love for our parents. And so I said, the love isn't the problem. Let's look at the behaviors that really were hurtful to you. And let's see if we can calm and complete that threat response. So uh, this movement from, Active uh, from passive responses like collapse or dissociation to active responses is very empowering. It really helps people feel like 
they have strength and they can do something about it. And they're doing it in the safety of your relationship, whether you're a therapist or a partner or a friend. And then the, they can move through the threat sequence and complete the threat response. And this may need to happen over and over again, and depending on how many triggers there are. But the attachment system and the threat response are kind of in a, a counter, they're across purposes. So I'm sort of uh, trying to untangle those two systems and have the person feel the positive part of both of those um, survival systems and in a way that they can um, complete both. And, and it, of course, because disorganized has so much threat in it, they very often are highly dysregulated. So they might have sudden shifts of emotional states. They might um, be easily triggered into hypervigilance. They might dissociate easily. So depending on how you unpack that, that's why it's so complicated. It could, it could show itself in so many different variations. But if you understand trauma work and you understand attachment work, I think they're kind of a marriage made in heaven, then you can address both those parts of things for people and help them learn how to better self-regulate, how to co-act co-regulate or interactively regulate with their partner. And if you get two disorganized people together in a relationship, you just need to make sure they are both triggered at the same time. <laughs> they need to take turns on dealing with the difficulties because uh, when you get two disorganized together, both triggered, that's, that's a recipe for suffering. Mm-hmm. Hi friends. My name is Jono Fisher. I'm the Executive Director of the Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is a new non-profit organization dedicated to bringing the benefits of transformational education to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. Some students from Southwest Uganda recently wrote to us and said, In spite of war and violence, Sounds True's materials are helping us really change. We can laugh more. We believe in life again. We can love again. And we are even beginning to allow forgiveness and compassion to enter our consciousness. If you'd like to learn more about how the Sounds True Foundation is helping change lives, or to become a supporter, please visit soundstruefoundation.org. Now, I want to ask you a personal question, and I'm, I'm going to yeah. be vulnerable myself in asking the question, setting it up, which is I myself discovered in my adult relational life that unfortunately I resonate quite a lot with the avoidant patterning. And it's been a mm-hmm. huge journey to be in a relationship that's characterized by secure attachment. It's a journey that really has been a big part of the last two decades of my life. So my personal question for you is what's your relationship blueprint pattern and how have you worked with it, whatever you have discovered that it is? Well, you know, you can have a mix of attachment styles, and I think that I was dealing a bit with, um, a lot actually, with disorganized avoidance, because disorganized involves both the attachment styles, insecure attachment styles. So you can lean towards an oscillation between uh, disorganized, and it might flip back and forth between avoidant and ambivalent, or you can have a disorganized pattern that's mostly ambivalent or disorganized with a pattern that's mostly avoidant. So I would say my journey involved disorganized with mostly avoidance because when I get really stressed, I tend to isolate and I like forget who my friends are or the people that are close to me. It's like they sort of don't exist all of a sudden, you know, I have to like make a list on my refrigerator or put pictures around or something to remind myself that I have resources because I just go into this kind of um, isolation reaction first. And so, um, I had disorganized largely because um, there was a lot of stress with one of my parents originally that was quite frightening ongoingly in my upbringing. So I was prob I was uh, alternately loved by this person, but also afraid of them. And um, that took me a while to sort out. And, and especially like doing the kind eyes exercise. The reason I love that one so much is I really had to work with that to be able to even see people's eyes and detect what 
they were looking at me, um, how they were looking at me, because I would always first see this angry kind of hateful look. And um, that took me a while to peel that back. Um, and so I had some traumatic experiences that were pretty severe when I was a child and uh, that were relationally based even outside the family. And um, so I had a lot of terror to work through, you know, so I was working very hard and thanks to Peter Levine and his work actually helped me a lot, re-regulate my nervous system and become very uh, relationally oriented and really interested in connection. Right. Uh, and in, in the beginning, I think I was really healing from relationships that were very uh, dangerous, actually. So that was a long journey. <laughs> I've been working on it really hard my entire incarnation and I'm 65 next month. So, <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I think that's part of what I wanted to bring forward because you, you mentioned how your book, The Power of Attachment, what you really want to help people with is learning these skills of secure attachment and moving in that direction in their life. And of course, I desperately want that as well to give that gift to other people in the world. And I want to make sure people have a sense, though, of what the journey's like, what's required, the depth of inner work that's required. And I wonder if you can speak to that, both the promise, but also what this actually asks of us. Well, you know, um, I think it starts with a, a curiosity, like almost like a candle being lit, of like seeking and curiosity of, of um, what happened to us, um, being able to have support and our own intention to heal from it. Um, I do a lot of spiritual work as well as uh, kind of psychotherapy kinds of things. And, um, and eventually learning how to disidentify from a lot of what those patterns were and to open to the healthier version, right? To like find a more uh, capacity for intimacy, more capacity for connection. And I, I don't want to say it's an easy journey, but it's incredibly fulfilling and so worth it once we get, you know, I think we get so much back when we allow ourselves to go through this process and really disidentifying from the idea that something's wrong with me or you, or like something's wrong with us personally, or that there's something wrong with the world, that we start to transcend and understand um, this amazing capacity for healing that we have and how to have an intelligent relationship to suffering. I think this is a really important point because there is suffering. There's no way around the fact that on this human journey, we're going to bump into some pretty tough stuff. I think this is a very tough planet to be on. It's tough to be human. I don't know what the other choices were, but we all made the choice to do this one. And it's, it's hard. Life is challenging. And maybe sometimes it's really great, but there's also lots of challenges. So I don't want to sound Pollyanna about this because I don't feel that way at all. And like, how do we um, find these helpers along the way? And then how do we also build the inner strength to confront things in ourselves that we could potentially disidentify from and find this reservoir of resiliency and capacity and um, expansiveness and openness. And then sometimes we lose it. And then how do we start again, right? It's kind of constantly like, I think, falling down and picking oneself up. And I think relationships, our deep relationships, whether they're partners or as a parent or deep friendships, I think that's really like being in the trenches because I think relationships challenge this part of ourselves in a really direct way for most of us. If we didn't have the jackpot of starting out with secure attachment and feeling basic trust and, you know, seeing relationships and expecting relationships to be nourishing and yummy and delicious and knowing how to respond to our partners in a way that just deepens love. A lot of us didn't start out from that point of, of experience, you know? So we, we make a lot of mistakes and then how do we come back and how do we uh, excavate what might work better or find that part of ourselves that's not wounded? I mean, we have the wounded part, but we have the unwounded part that we access more and more as we do this deep exploration. How do we disidentify, Diane, but make sure that we're not avoiding the journey we actually need to make through the old pattern? Well, in my process, it's usually I get dumped into a vat of pain for a while, and I'm just trying to figure out, well, okay, what is this about, right? And I'm trying to stay with the experience and not disconnect from it. And that means I'm not avoiding it because it's just it's like to be open to the whole experience of life, the pain, the joy, the sadness, the anguish, the, the expansion, the constriction. And 
and to get guidance when we need it. I were a big believer in having a lot of mentors and therapists and spiritual teachers in my life. I, I think that's hugely beneficial to me. And, um, and then also having a commitment to ourselves to try to be, it's kind of mindfulness. Like I said, I'm talking about mindfulness to really be with our experience as, as it unpacks. And that the pain sometimes is as valuable as the breakthrough because you, you're like metabolizing something. You're metabolizing your history, uh, digesting it, assimilating what you can use, eliminating what you don't need anymore. And I think that in a way is a very digestive metaphor for disidentification, but I sort of have to go in and down and in the muck and then eventually surface or get some a hand up to see things more clearly by the addition of someone else's more pure presence, you know? And fortunately, I mean, your whole orientation in the world and mission is to, to expose people to all these different possibilities spiritually and um, in healing. I, and, and I feel like uh, we live in a time that's, relatively recent where there's been so much available in terms of being able to communicate spiritual work and healing possibilities. And, you know, even what I'm offering in the attachment work, we can get that information out there and we can partake of it. We can, we can use it. But I think having somebody, a person, whoever that is, whether it's a partner or a professional person or, a, a, you know, a personal relationship just really helps a lot. It's, it's like, I think it helps us uh, move through pain more quickly and more efficiently in a way um, to find ourselves in a more spacious, spacious possibility. I mean, it has been a really rich journey. I, and I, and I, there's like a hidden gift in trauma because as you process it and you metabolize it, then it opens up into t- tremendous creativity and vision and different spiritual dimensions. So it's worth it, except that I'm, I don't like to say that to people in the very beginning because it almost feels like you're not honoring how hard it is because it is hard. Mm-hmm. There are times it's devastating. Do you have a sense when it comes to repatterning an attachment blueprint, how long that takes in general? Once again, just trying to give people a framework. You know, I think the more you take to heart the particular secure attachment skills, like some of them I offer in the book, um, you can make each one of those a practice. Like for me, I've made it a real practice if somebody reaches out to me, whether it's email, voicemail, you know, whatever, that I respond as much as I can within 24 hours. And I have a lot of people in my life, yeah. so that's a pretty major commitment. Um, or and I also have a staff that helps with some of the things that aren't specific to me, you know, of course. But um, I really practice my responsiveness. And it's funny because sometimes I'll write an email and then I go back to the beginning and I, 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 um, say more about connection and that I try to emphasize connection. And I really have made a practice about repair. You know, when I feel like something's off, I try to, you know, drum up the courage to address it. And maybe not always immediately, maybe I have to grind on it for a while, but um, those types of things help. And even how I look at someone and like I've been greeting someone, I make sure I'm not looking in their file or I'm not tied up on my cell phone and I look at them, I greet them, I, you know, shake their hand or hug them, whatever the relationship allows. And I look at them directly and I drum up as much presence as I can. And these are things I've learned from, uh, well, from the attachment uh, study, but um, also like, who do we want to be in the world and how do we want to connect and um, how do we want to honor uh, every individual, because we're all interconnected. In a way, we're all seeing ourselves, you know, we're all the same thing from some perspective, you know, but how do we not get into this um, us versus them polarization that is so easy to trigger if you're coming from fear or hatred or anger? And how do we get into an all of us sort of interconnected perspective? And I think secure attachment really helps that. It helps brain integration. It helps us access love and compassion and it helps us move into that global citizen kind of space, you know, like a more cooperative versus competitive or collaborative. It, we, we become collaborators with people in our lives. And you're not going to do this perfectly every day. I mean, we're, we're going to do the best we can. But as you make it practices, it gets easier. You know, one of the sections of the book, The Power of Attachment, that I really liked Towards the beginning, you were talking about ways that we can increase secure attachment and about how whatever insecure attachment we might have might have been transmitted generationally through our parents' own history. And you offer 
an exercise, a sort of visualization practice we could do to help heal our parents, to help heal our mom and heal our dad in whatever their attachment trauma might be. Can you share a little bit about how we could do that for our parents at whatever age they are, or even if they've passed on? Yeah, I love this exercise. One of my favorites, too. And I usually call it reversing role reversal, because one of the things that happens in childhood to create insecure attachment uh, is that um, often children are relied on to fulfill parents' needs, or they kind of become surrogate spouses in some cases. And that, you know, we're ideally our parents are our parents and it's a, it's an asymmetrical relationship Their parents are mostly there for us. And then of course, as we get older, we're there for our parents, but, uh, in, in more, but, um, in this, in this exercise, first, what I usually do with somebody, if I was like doing therapy with them is I would have them go into their own attachment wound and then see what they didn't get and then try to create a corrective experience where they're actually getting that need met. Like maybe they didn't feel listened to or they never felt seen. And then I'd say, well, okay, is there somebody in your life that you feel really gets you now? Or can, if, if you could imagine someone being like that, what, what qualities would they have? How would they be acting with you? So they're kind of creating the antidote or maybe they're feeling it coming from me because I certainly would be trying to hear and see them. Um, but then as they feel that need met, then I, then I'll sometimes, because then they have kind of a base in themselves, they're not operating from wound. I'll often invite them to go, you know, I wonder, I mean, you're sort of an expert on your mom at this point. You spent many, many years with her and sorry, many different circumstances. Uh, let me just start with mom. Um, I wonder if you can just sort of see your mother and just imagine what does she need? What is missing for her? What unmet need is there that she might be? you know, behaving from or, you know, uh, experiencing her life from that vantage point. And very often people see it very quickly. They go, oh, my gosh, my mom needed support for autonomy. My father in their marriage just completely controlled her. She never had any time to herself. And she had six kids. Um, my mom really needed, I mean, if she was born today, she'd be a CEO of a company. She was so competent, but she was kind of trapped in this uh, older era lifestyle and it didn't really fit for her. And so it's okay. So just imagine what that would be like. And I had one uh, client say, oh, I'd love her to have a book club with um, Mary Tyler Moore. Remember my girl? I'm dating myself now. Yeah. It's this autonomous young woman. And then I think the other one was uh, Mary Tyler Moore when she was in that show where she was in, she worked for the news station and she was an independent woman. She wasn't in a relationship. So she was just, I just wish she could have those opportunities, you know? And so she's like imagining her mother in this book club with all these women from media that would represent having autonomy and choice, you know, not, not necessarily that she wouldn't have chosen also to be married and be a mother, nothing wrong with that, but that she would have had this wish fulfilled. And as she felt that with her mother, she started just feeling like, Oh my gosh, I can just see my mother happy. And as she's happy, I can see her being more caring towards me because you're kind of moving in the imagination, at least the mother towards secure attachment, having her own needs met. And then she's of course, much, uh, more fulfilled and can be a much more loving and available and present parent. So it, it's healing the generations. And in this particular case, the person was a parent themselves. And we started to work with her as a mother and her daughter and repairing that uh, insecure attachment that had come generationally. So we're doing three generations uh, at once, but I really do believe what you said that it, even if your parents not alive anymore, I feel it can heal ancestrally and sort of kind of break that, um, generational transmission, which many of us have more capacity to do these days because we have so many resources that simply didn't exist if you go back 80 to 90 years. Mm-hmm. You know, Diane, I want to call our conversation. We are designed for connection. and I agree. <laughs> that's a quote from what you said earlier in this hour together. And as we end, you've mentioned a few things that might help that person who's feeling somewhat disconnected in some way. Uh, One of the things you mentioned in the Power of Attachment book that I thought was great was, is there anybody that's reaching out to you that you could respond to? Maybe someone who's reached out for a repair and you haven't been there for that or reached out for connection. What are your other suggestions for the person who's listening right now who's thinking, God, I wish... I wish I felt more connected to the people in my world. Well, there's some simple things, actually, like even how you um, greet 
a, a friend or let's say a partner when you're first meeting up after you haven't seen each other? Like, can you give a um, full body hug, you know, belly to belly, not the triangle hug that a lot of times people do where they just tap each other on the shoulder, but they're kind of like looking like a tent instead of really connected. Can you, if you're to your partner, then it would be a, even a closer hug. And can you stay in that hug until you can actually feel each other regulate each other, right? Can you stay in that connection? And then and then support the other person. Stan Tatkin has a lovely YouTube on that uh, called the welcome home hug on the internet and um, having rituals for connection. Like how do you uh, greet people? How do you, if you are, if you're living with someone, how do you get up in the morning? How do you connect in the morning? How do you do rituals where you have connection at night? I have friends um, that uh, they, they have this pattern of each of them finding these really special truffles. And every night they'll put uh, this very special truffle that they hunt down during the day on their each their partner's pillow. And they don't always go to bed at the same time, but they have this appreciation. And they always try to have a little debriefing pillow talk before they go to sleep. And just little things that, that you know you can rely on, traditions that you set up in everyday living. And of course, like holidays, but, but really everyday living. Um, when some, when one of your friends, you see a friend, how do you, do you light up? Do you, um, are you welcoming? Are you a welcoming person? I mean, are you a friendly person? Are you somebody that people can feel they can feel with, they can be present with? Um, and if you're not in a space where you have time for somebody that you can just be direct about that, go, oh gosh, I'm really busy. I'd love to talk to you on the phone, but I'm going to have to do it tomorrow or next month or whatever. Can you be responsive, but also have boundaries when you need them? Because sometimes we aren't available. You know, we need to be clear about when we're going to show up again. You know, um, if you have a d difficulty or conflict with somebody, it's good not to uh, argue too much to more than 15 minutes because it starts to lay all that anger and resentment or whatever emotions are going on into long-term memory. So we need to learn to argue or have conflict in shorter periods of time, like not more than 20 minutes. So you know, okay, let's table this. We're going to come back to it in an hour. We're going to come back to it after we go take a walk and enjoy the sunset, or we're going to go to a movie and then we're going to come back to it, but we need to take a break so that we don't sort of, from a memory perspective, uh, actually facilitate our beloved turning into our enemy, you know, because if you have too much negative long-term memory, you're going to, your body is going to start reacting to that person as if they're not a friend, that they're a foe. So just understanding some of our physiology and some of our design uh, we could have more intention to build more positive memory, um, deepen our intimacy, uh, help ourselves learn how to connect. And I think I'd like to say to people, you know, we just think that connection happens automatically, but I think it's actually a pretty big life lesson. And Dan Siegel said at a conference one time that, you know, we've done so much about learning how to track our bodies, learning to understand our emotions, learning how to understand our cognitions, even learning to our spiritual states, like awareness of no uh, of awareness. But connection is really the frontier, the 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 leading edge for most of us is learning how to truly connect to ourselves and to other people in our lives. And just as a note to end on, uh, you know, it's my conviction that as we learn how to be more securely attached in our lives to our loved ones and within our relationships with the people we work with, our partnerships with authors, Diane Poole, Heller, you know, people, <laughs> everybody in our life, that this is one of the biggest levers to create a kinder and compassionate world and a beautiful world. And I wonder what you think about that. I think this might be the biggest lever, personally. Well, actually, I think if we wanted to change the world, we could do it in a couple generations. If we really supported new families to understand secure attachment and help parents do that and help relationships go move into that space. I mean, think about it. If you had all the world leaders really focused on secure attachment, can you even imagine how, what, what the outcome of that would be? And I have a big vision. I'd like us to have a relationship revolution where people really understand this. And some of the reasons I took the time to write the book, because I just feel it's so powerful. I've seen it changed so many things in my life. And you've said that's been true for you. And I feel like there is so much potential and it takes some work. It takes some commitment. It takes an orientation, but we have to know what we're going for. We have to have specifics, you know, to help ourselves. And that's what I'm trying to, to bring out during the trainings, the online trainings, the books, you know, I'm trying to help. And I'm totally open for other people's suggestions and ideas because I think anything we can do to move the needle more towards secure and, you know, really having people in our lives in a deep and powerful way just enriches everyone. It's such a win-win-win. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just happy to be part of it and to talk about it and to practice it myself. I certainly don't do it perfectly, but I'm working on it, you know. 
and I think it's just a really rich place that uh, hopefully people will enjoy discovering even as they go through the healing and some of the pain that might be in the way. I've been talking with Diane Poolheller. She's the author of a very beautiful and helpful and practical new book. It's called The Power of Attachment, How to Create Deep and Lasting Intimate Relationships. Diane has a gift for taking a lot of complex research, science, study, her own many, many years as a practitioner, and writing quite an accessible book and one that I think will be very useful for readers, The Power of Attachment. Thanks, everyone, for being with us. Thank you, Diane, especially. It's been a pleasure, Tammy, as always. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. At Sounds True, we are dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely accessible. The new Sounds True Foundation exists to remove financial barriers and make sure that people in communities of need have access to transformational tools and teachings. You can find out more at SoundsTrueFoundation.org. I also want to invite you to our first in-person Sounds True gathering, which is a fundraiser for the new Sounds True Foundation. Join us and connect with some of your favorite Sounds True authors in the beautiful redwood forests outside of Santa Cruz. It's a three-day experience filled with learning, inspiration, nature, and connection. It's all happening September 26th through the 29th, 2019. To learn more or reserve a ticket, just visit soundstruefoundation.org forward slash event. Again, that's soundstruefoundation.org forward slash event. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to being with you next time. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world. <laughs>